welcome to the first episode of the Mystery Spot podcast. This is a podcast where I'll give you all the information regarding true crime, conspiracy theories and mysteries. There's going to be a new episode every week so make sure you try and keep track. If there's anything you want covering please let me know and I'll try my best to do that for you. The first case is actually a case that sparked my interest in true crime. Um, I read this book when I was in school so maybe I was around 11 or 12 years old. You could actually say that this has turned um, into a little bit of an obsession. Uh, I've watched many, many murder documentaries over the years, um, which actually led me to complete a psychology and criminology degree. So sit back and enjoy, and I hope you find it interesting. Thank you. The first case I'm going to talk about took place in 2002. So Jessica and Holly were two 10-year-old girls who were best friends. They lived in Soham and went to the same school, and they lived within a couple of streets of each other. These two girls were massive Man United fans um, and if you actually know anything about the case you may have seen a photo of the girls where they're wearing matching Man United shirts and it was these shirts they were wearing um, on the day that they went missing in August 2002. It was a typical British summer's day uh, where they had a barbecue and family time at Holly Wells's house. Um, they spent the day together and around 6.15pm they decided they wanted to walk to a local shop to buy sweets. But they didn't mention this to their parents, which is quite a typical thing. Um, you know, when you're young, you want some independence. And they thought, you know, that I'll just watch the shops, get some sweets and we'll come back. However, they didn't know that they would never come home. Around 8.30pm, their parents realised they hadn't heard from the girls in a few hours. Unaware that they were no longer in the house, the parents went upstairs to check at Holly's bedroom and found that they, were no, they weren't in there. So they searched the house, searched in the garden, searched the local areas to see if the girls were there and they couldn't find them. Of course, the girls were missing, but they didn't know this yet. They searched in all the parks and the fields and called the police eventually around 9.45pm. Due to the age of the girls, the police were dispatched straight away. Um, and the next morning, the story broke on the news and it was on every single news station. The fact that two young white females of a slim build around four foot six had gone missing that evening and the photo used all over the news was the one of the girls in their matching Man United shirts. It's a tiny town, um, which means everybody knew each other or knew of each other. So when it was announced that the girls were missing, all of the town pitched in to try and help find them. Hundreds and hundreds of people wanted to help. Appeals were made by the police on the news to, for the safe return of the girls. But at this moment, nobody actually thought about the potential that the girls had been kidnapped. It was assumed that the girls had simply gone missing and got lost. The girls lived very close to fields and wooded areas. Like I said, the initial thought by police was that they'd gone for a walk and actually gotten lost on their way back. But because of the time in 2002, technology wasn't what it is now. So the mobile phones that the girls were carrying couldn't be traced to an exact location but could only be traced to the area of Soham to show that they were still in the town so they hadn't left the area. Police had made public appeals but now it was time for the parents. So around the next few days parents made many appeals on the news hoping for the girls' safe return um, and the school that they, those girls attended became the base. So the basis for the investigation where all the volunteers, the parents and the police were because there were so many people helping out, they needed a, a place for people to go and get updates and to give information. And this was crucial to the case because it also meant that they could watch who was actually inserting themselves in the investigation. You normally find this with people who have committed a crime or are linked to the crime. They like to kind of keep an eye on things that are happening. 
Uh, and this was exactly what had happened in this case. Multiple witnesses actually came forward, which is the first sort of leads that the police took. Um, one of the witnesses came forward and said that they'd seen the girls on that day um, and they were reported that they'd walked past her front window. However, this lead was looked into, but nothing actually came of it. Another, another witness came forward and said that they'd seen a suspicious white van in the area. No, obviously, because everybody knew everybody in the area, they knew that this white van actually stuck out of place. Um, however, the van was traced down and searched, and again, nothing was found. On August 9th, it had been five days since the girls had been missing. All the businesses in the area had then decided the next step was to check their CCTV to see if anything could be seen. And sure enough, the spotters centre around the corner found the girls on their CCTV from that day. This led police to believe that they were planning to meet somebody, for example, through an online chat room. However, this theory was quickly discarded as there was no evidence to support this. The girls had not been on any online chat rooms. You know, you get this nowadays where kids go on and, and they meet older men and they go missing with the older men. And, and this is this happens quite often, but this theory was ruled out. There were other theories looked into also, but none of them had any, any evidential backing. So theories were disproved almost as quickly as they were being created. And this made a really large problem for the police. They had nowhere to look and no leads to follow up on. One of the obvious next steps for the police to take was to look into sexual predators in the area. Now, in the area, there weren't many. However, the few that they had found um, had alibis of to where they was on that day. So the only leads they could go by was another witness statement. A witness came forward and said that he'd seen a car driving erratically in the streets at the time with two children in the back. A police statement was released about the car giving all the information regarding a description and where to provide information if they knew anything about the owner of the vehicle or the location of the vehicle. Around the same time, a man came forward as a witness, saying he'd found two small mounds of earth in a field while walking his dog. So putting these two theories together, the parents were absolutely devastated, thinking that these two mounds of earth could be their children in, in small, shallow graves. These graves were actually found and search but unfortunately nothing was found no traces of the girls were found and they actually turned out to be molehills another theory was that the girls were part of a failed abduction similar to one that had happened the year previously involving a six-year-old girl who had escaped her abductor and actually reported him to police however the suspect was never found so this was a big lead for the police thinking that maybe just maybe he'd come back for a second chance on the 15th of August, the girls had been missing 11 days and Sky News decided to do a special where they traced the girls' steps on that day for a special TV show. Interviewing people along the route the girls had taken, this also included the last people the girls were believed to speak to on the route. Ian Huntley worked at a local school as a caretaker. His partner Maxine worked at the girls' school as a teacher. Now, Ian Huntley actually didn't work at the girls' school as a caretaker, but his partner did. And the pair lived very, very close to the shop where Holly and Jessica went for sweets that day. Ian had actually said that he'd seen the girls and had put himself forward as a witness. He'd come forward and inserted himself into the investigation to tell the police that he'd seen the girls that day. He actually said that the reason that he'd seen the girls is that they were walking past his house and they stopped while he was in the front garden dealing with his dog. They wanted to ask about the welfare of their teacher, Maxine. However, he said that he chatted to the girls 
they asked questions and then they left in the direction of the sports centre. Everybody gave interviews on TV, including his partner Maxine, who in her interview kept actually referring to the girls in the past tense. And this was very strange for police. They sort of look out for these signals and body language. And since she was referring to the girls as they were amazing girls and she loved teaching them, saying things about them as if they were no longer here, that she knew something that police didn't know. And they decided to tell this to police because they thought something was suspicious. And police agreed. Police believed that Maxine knew more than she was letting on. And Ian was obsessed with the investigation. So police decided to look into this further as something didn't quite match up. Police have been more and more interested in looking at bystanders and those who have inserted themselves into the investigation, as I've previously said. This meant that while they were in the school, they liked to look at volunteers. So often the perp is one of the volunteers who help the police look for the bodies. They help bring forth evidence. They come forth with witness statements. They tend to be very, very involved. And this is something that the police thought was really important to make sure that it looked into every single volunteer. If you do volunteer, you'll find that you have to um, sign in, sign out. You are watched at every move. And this is the reason why. On the 16th of August, Ian and Maxine were brought in separately for questioning. And they said they, they were home together, providing them both with a solid alibi. After seven hours of questioning, both Ian and Maxine were released without charge. Local news stations were wanting to find out what the police had questioned them about, so they were calling and stood outside their house trying to find out what the police had wanted from them. And Maxine was more than willing to give information, saying that nothing had happened and that they were released without charge because obviously they weren't involved. Ian, on the other hand, was very hostile towards the news stations, taking the limelight out of Maxine and saying, no more questioning, nothing else to say. He sort of brushed them off and told them, you know, he would let them know if he had any more information. Now, if we focus a little more on the actual people, Ian Huntley was born in Grimsby. He had a really, really rough childhood and was bullied throughout school and he didn't really have many friends which probably meant that he had a sense of shame that he didn't fit in with society. He was always a little bit odd and tended to be a learner in school. Now, I'm not saying this is a reason for being a, a murderer or having anything to do with the investigation. I'm just giving you a little bit of background on him. When he was 18 year old, he had his first romance and got married. He discovered that he had a terrible temper and his wife soon found out after that. Um, she divorced him and actually got with his younger brother and that was a big problem for Ian. He felt very threatened by his younger brother, who was obviously more outgoing. He had more friends. Um, and his very, very narcissistic personality meant that he felt that his brother was always trying to be better than him. After this, when he was a bit older and divorced, he met a 15-year-old girl and actually got her pregnant. Now, this is very important to remember later on um, because she actually did keep the baby. This goes to show, obviously, that he had a very unhealthy appetite for younger women. And being, obviously, of age and being with a minor, he actually didn't get anything done to him. So he wasn't arrested or anything, which is I find very strange. I don't know about you. Um, if a 15-year-old girl got pregnant by a 20-odd-year-old, I'm sure someone would have something to say about it now. But when he was 24 years old, he was charged with rape and robbery which gave him a name in the area. It was a separate rape. It wasn't anything to do with the 15-year-old, obviously showing that he had some sort of assault and temperamental background, meaning that he 
um, was known for that in the area. He was said to have assaulted many more women, but he was actually only charged for one. So we can't say anything about the alleged assaults other than the one that he's been charged with. He then met Maxine when he moved to Scunthorpe after a year or two of dating because his reputation was getting a bit too much for him, so he decided to move away. However, his rage and his sexual predator name followed him to Scunthorpe, causing allegations to arise that was, you know, going on with police. He didn't want anything to do with it. This obviously affected his relationship and he was very controlling of Maxine, which led into violence. And neighbours have reported multiple times that he'd shout at her, undermine her. He then he turned physical. And if she actually had people round, she was bleaching the surfaces so that he didn't know that they'd been round. He was very, very controlling. And she lost all sight of what was real, I think, and decided to move away with him. Um... And I think she wanted to just kind of get away with it all and didn't really have an option. So they moved to Soham, which is back to where we are now. So he'd kind of had a bit of a rough childhood, rocky relationships. Um, His relationship he was currently in was very violent and abusive. Then he moved to Soham. So we're back where we started. Despite being released without a charge, the police decided that they still wanted to look into Ian. And understandably so. I mean, he was obviously acting shady and some of his things that he'd said went right so on the 17th of august the police decided to search the school where he worked and they actually found a a mountain of evidence so on the 17th of august they'd found burnt clothing and this actual clothing they found was man new tops burnt in a bin with their underwear and shoes this was a huge red flag for police the police now had a specific problem They had to link these items of clothing to Ian. Examining the the items was um, a tricky task because they were burnt. However, five human head hairs were found. They compared the DNA on these hairs to the girls and found that they weren't a match. However, luckily, they were a match for Ian Huntley. This was enough evidence for the police to arrest Ian and Maxine on suspicion of murder. Maxine had obviously been lying about where she was in her previous statement. She told police this, that she was never actually at home with Ian that night. She was miles and miles away, which was then confirmed as her alibi. Ian subsequently was left with no alibi and had no other option than to speak to police. Later this day, unfortunately, the burnt human remains were found. Police were told that these remains were Jessica and Holly. A team of experts went into the ditch where the bodies were found and determined that the girls were definitely in there and this was because of their clothing. The bodies were in such a state that the cause of death could not be clear at first. However, the area around where the bodies were found gave a lot more information than you would expect. Experts were called in and these experts are called botanists which is where they look at the animals such as the insects and the plants in the area. They followed the advice of the botanists and found that the hair found a few hairs from Jessica further down in a path of weeds. The girls were found in an area where the weeds had grown underneath and round them, which meant that the girls hadn't died in that area but were dumped there. They followed the path of weeds and found hairs and fibres from the girls, showing that they'd been dragged there. The way they linked this to Ian was with the human hairs found in the girls' clothing because parts of the girl's clothing was also found at the dump site. He can't have touched one without touching the other. In the meantime, the police decided that the best course of action was to search Ian Huntley's home, 
which strangely enough was found to be extremely clean. Now I know we're not all surprised, obviously we know he's done it, but they have to find enough evidence to prove that beyond all doubt that he was the one who did it. From his home you could smell a very, very strong smell of bleach and lemon cleaner. Now something that people don't often know about a vacuum cleaner is that it collects up the particles from the floor and actually spreads them around the house. So as much as it sucks in the dirt, it also, in the sort of brushes at the bottom of the vacuum cleaner, pieces of fibres can get stuck in there. And when you vacuum in a house, it means that it can spread around the whole house. They actually sifted through the vacuum cleaner contents and the fibres stuck around the house and found that fibres from the girl's clothing was everywhere. His car was also meticulously cleaned um, to the point where it looked like it'd been brand new and he'd actually changed his tyres recently which was very strange to change all four tyres at the same time. However, he wasn't as clever as he thought he was because underneath the car where he'd obviously not cleaned, mud from the dump site had sprayed up into underneath of his car and matched the mud where the girls had been found showing that he'd, even though his tyres were different and the tracks were different, and there was no trace on the inside of the car, underneath the car, the mud told us a different story. Surprisingly enough, he pleaded not guilty, which is very strange, because obviously of all this, you know, we've got evidence, we've got, you know, his, his testimonies where he's obviously lying, his bad alibi, and Maxine saying she wasn't with him that night, it was a bit too you know, of a coincidence for him to have not done it. But he pleaded guilty anyway. However, until a month before the trial, he changed his plea, saying that it wasn't his fault and he hid the bodies because he was scared that the death of the girls was an accident. Maxine was charged with perverting the course of justice and she pleaded not guilty to this. However, she clearly did do it by lying about where he was and where she was causing the whole investigation to go a different direction. So since Ian had said it wasn't his fault, let's delve a little bit deeper into what his side of the story was, because lawyers are always happy to listen to both sides, and the jury will listen to both sides. Ian's story. So Ian said that the girls were walking past his house when Holly, one of the girls, started to have a nosebleed, so he let the girls into his house to clean themselves up. In the bathroom, there were three of them, and it was a small bathroom. His claim was that he accidentally knocked Holly into the bath, which was full of water. Jessica started screaming, and he didn't want her to tell anybody. He put his hand over her mouth to calm her down, but accidentally suffocated Jessica. So now, Ian has Holly in the bath, drowning, and Jessica suffocated to death. So Holly was actually alive, he said at that point, and he'd just knocked herself out. And unfortunately, then she did drown in the bath. It was theorised that Ian had argued with Maxine on the day and had then seen the girls when he was waiting out of his house. And in fury, he led them into his house where he murdered them. He obviously denies this. Maxine admitted in court about lying about her alibi, therefore admitting that she'd perverted the course of justice. Ian knew that he was wrong. So he said that instead of admitting that what he'd done, he hid the bodies. You wouldn't hide the bodies of two 10-year-old girls if it was an accident. If it was a genuine accident, you would say something. 
This is what makes me believe that it definitely was not an accident. And he actually sticks by this story today. So while he's in prison, he still says that it's an accident. He still says that he didn't have means to, to hurt the girls. But I suppose it's what you believe. The courts found Ian guilty on both counts of murder, which is very unsurprising. He was given 40 years in prison without the possibility of parole. During the trial, he actually decided to fake a mental illness so that people would think he wasn't guilty because he wasn't of sound mind. He was sectioned during the trial and tested. And the hospital came back and said that he didn't have anything wrong with him. Obviously not. Um, and one of the girls that he'd previously been accused of assaulting came forward to police and said that he'd done something very similar before um, when he was accused of assaulting the young girl in that trial to sort of push the blame onto mental illness rather than himself. The way that he'd sort of pretend that he had this mental illness was to sit while being questioned and dribble out of his mouth and give stupid answers to questions that they thought he didn't really know what he was talking about. And we know better than that. And the hospital knew better than that. So when they tested him and it came back with nothing, the behaviours stopped. Maxine was found guilty of perverting the course of justice, but not guilty of aiding an offender. They found that she had nothing to do with the murders. She just supported him. She protected him as she thought he was innocent, which if he told her this story and she thought he was innocent, then why would you not support your partner? I completely understand. However, she was being abused. So whether that played a part in it, we're not sure. Perhaps she was scared of him. Who knows? She was given three and a half years and released after a year and nine months for good behaviour. And the most interesting thing about this is she was given a brand new identity. And this doesn't happen very often at all, to be fair. I mean, I know of a few cases where it's happened, but where they get half an identity. So they'll use their legal name on legal papers, but they'll actually go by another identity in their personal life. But Maxine was given a full new identity. This cost the public millions and millions of pounds. And she's actually now married and she has a child. And I suppose maybe her husband doesn't know who she is unless he's obviously found out about it or she's told him. I can't imagine she would have told him, but she's now got a kid. And having a kid to somebody and not knowing who they are. In 2004, the house where the girls were murdered was actually demolished. Now, you might have been wondering why Ian had got away with so much in his life. So the assaults, the sexual assaults, the getting this 15-year-old girl pregnant. So as a result of this, he, his police work was actually looked into. The police didn't pick up on him early enough and they should have found with a simple background check that he'd been, you know, there'd been allegations against him for years about him, you know, ripping and, and assaulting young girls. They should have been at his door very early on and they wasn't. So why was he allowed to work in a school? Are we not doing enough to protect the children? Is this why things like this are happening? The allegations and the charges should have been enough for them to ban him from working in schools. And he even admitted to assaulting a girl but wasn't charged. So why was he allowed to work in a school? Maybe if this wasn't the case, would he not know Jessica and Holly? Would he not have done this? You know, I know it's a big what if, but it's quite important to realise that the police did shoddy work and this might have led to the fact that he was around kids, saw Holly and Jessica and just wanted to have his way. Ian is in prison to this day and it's constantly on the news. I'm sure you'll have seen it. He's always been attacked. And when you were in a prison, you tend to be targeted for your crimes. 
So if it's anything to do with women or children, those types of people are targeted first. So one attack that he'd had was where a quadruple murderer threw boiling water over him after finding out what he'd done. He was given compensation for this incident, which I think is quite disgusting, leading to thousands of pounds in compensation. This quadruple murderer has gone on to injure other women and children murderers as well. So he obviously feels, even though he's murdered four people, that he's above the people who have murdered children and women. In 2010, Ian was in a fight in prison and his throat was slashed. Unfortunately, he was sent to hospital and it wasn't life-threatening. He has recovered from this. And he has tried to kill himself a few times um, with the drugs and overdosing. In his cell, once while he was recovering in hospital from an overdose, they found a tape with a confession on, mixed in with some songs. However, this confession only said what he'd previously said before, that he'd found the girls having trouble, brought them into their house, one of them had fallen in the bathtub, and he'd, he'd suffocated the other one back accidentally. So, is this true? You know, he'd, he'd mixed in this confession on a tape, tried to kill himself... You know, was this his last dying words? Did he want people to believe it? Does this change the way you think about him? Did he do it? I believe he did it. And I don't believe it was an accident. But, you know, this is quite compelling evidence as to whether he did or didn't do it. He also claims there was no sexual aspect to the crime. But he's previously been accused of sexual assault. So can you really believe anything he says? I mean, he lied to police all the way through put himself on the telly, he wanted to be forefront of the investigation, he wanted to be known, he wanted his name out there, but there was no sexual aspect to it. Do you believe that? That seems to be his motive in everything else he's done, including the rapes and the getting the young children pregnant. Do you really think that? I don't believe that at all. Now, if you remember when in the beginning I mentioned that he'd got the 15-year-old pregnant and she kept the baby and did have the baby. This baby now has grown up and found out that Ian Huntley was her father through Google at school, where she'd been researching crime in the area, and found a picture of her and her mother on a news article stating that they were related to him and that she was his daughter. She knew from a very young age that the reason her dad wasn't around is because he was a horrible person. And that's the end of this case. Um, it is a bit of a gruesome one, and it's it's obviously very sad that two young girls lost their life. So just wanted to remind everybody that there is two victims in this case and that Ian Huntley will eventually get what he deserves one day. Now, I also want to reflect on what I think happened in, in, with this case. Um, I think that Ian and Maxine had had an argument that day and that she'd left the house. And then in a rage, he'd gone outside and seen the two girls and decided to take the opportunity. I believe he led them into his house um, and tried to so probably sexually assault one of them. The other one tried to escape, so he suffocated them and then obviously killed the other one and disposed of their bodies in, in nearby field. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed my first podcast. Stay tuned for the next episode. Thank you. Bye.